what I'm trying to do is at the start of this year, as we're all looking at the year ahead and New Year's resolutions and all that kind of good stuff, put before us God's vision for your life and encourage you to pursue that. That's really what I'm trying to do. Uh, So I hope it'll be helpful. And we're going to use this passage to unpack what that vision is and how we're going to get there. And I'm going to end off by showing you a little framework um, that I use in my coaching work to help us actually move forward in our spiritual growth. So uh, here is the text, and uh, I want you to look at it. Uh, It's a wonderful text, and I want you to answer this question for me. According to this verse, and look, I'll give you a hand and say, um, uh, actually, it's in verse 4. What, according to verse 4, is God's vision for your life or God's intention for your life? What, uh, What is God's vision for your life? According to verse 4. Yes. Uh, What is it? To have a godly life? Yep. Put even more starkly in verse 4. And I'll give you a bit of a hint. It's prefaced. It follows on the two little words, so that. So that through them, these promises of God, you may what? Participate in the divine nature. Isn't that amazing? I don't know if you've ever noticed that verse there. God's plan for your life is that you might become like him and share in his very own nature, which is quite unlike any other vision or purpose for your life that you might get from someone else. I've, I've like reading, and I've been reading a bunch of stuff around productivity and self-improvement and life hacking and goal setting and all this kind of stuff. Let me tell you, in all the goal setting literature I read, everyone says you've got to, you know, if you're going to set goals, if you're going to be the greatest you you can possibly be, you've got to have, you've got to have a clear sense of purpose. What are you here to do? You know, start with why. Okay, so good. Let me tell you, I don't read any goal-setting, personal productivity book that says your purpose is to become like God. Or even more radically, outside of the hardcore New Age movement, your your purpose is actually to become God-like, a mini-God. That's what it is to be a Christian, is to be a mini-Christ. That's God's plan, that you and I actually become changed and transformed. How's that for a vision? Is that what you want for 2017? That you know what it's like to participate in the divine nature, to become more Christ-like. Sure, it's great to set goals for, you know, what your, um, you know, resting heart rate might be or what your superannuation balance might be or what your CV might look like or what your marriage could look like. Those are all good goals. But, but what about this one? Like the that may 2017 be a year where you participate in the divine nature deeply in a way that is visible and progress is made. Now, um, I don't know if you've ever traveled in London. I'm sure m- many of you have. And when you go on the tube in London, when you, whenever you pull up to the station, there's this, you know, the, the, the announcement comes over, mind the gap, mind the gap. 
I find that a really helpful reminder. It's one I live with all the time because guess what? I, when, as soon as I say this, I say, well, here's the vision to become like God. I'm, I, what, the, the voice in my head says, Mark, mind the gap. What's the gap? Well, here's Mark-likeness and here's Christ-likeness. And there's a big gap, right? I mean, you all know it and you only have to listen to me for like, 25 minutes a day. Imagine being me. I'm so aware. I've got mind the gap mark. The gap between where I am. Like, you know, where, where I, here, here's where I am now. And, and here's, here's the divine nature. Isn't that a big gap? I mean, isn't that a big gap for you? Actually, maybe I shouldn't ask you because you might be deluded. What if I asked those who knew you well? Maybe I maybe went to your spouse and said, tell me. Is your partner, what's the gap between where they are and like the divine nature? That gap's huge. So how do, we, how, do we, how do we bridge that gap? How do I get from here to here? What's the, where does the power come from, right? Well, the good news about Christianity is it's fundamentally not a, uh, an exercise in self-improvement, though it will improve ourselves. It's because where does the power come from? Look at verse 3 up on the screen. Uh, where, does the, where do we get the power to, to grow? His divine power. Look at the flow of the argument. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. Isn't that amazing? Through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Let me ask you a question. If, if this is where I am now, or where you are now, and this is participating in the divine nature, this is being Christ-like, uh, God says he, his power gives me absolutely everything I need to get from here to here, doesn't it? Everything. How much is left out of everything? Nothing. Wow. So often, I think, in my own heart, I discover this bit of, when I look at this goal, this vision of Christ-likeness, I go, I can't possibly get there. Like, how am I ever going to do that? And, and maybe God's not really enough. Maybe I also need self-help. Maybe I also need chemical assistance. Maybe, maybe it's all just too hard. But no, the text is really clear. Everything we need. Everything we need. Wow. I think the problem often, the problem is not God's. The problem is we're, you know, it's, it's like, uh, it's like you, you're at home and you're making yourself a co- cup of coffee, right? You know, I don't know if you're like me, I like a cup of coffee. Uh, and you've got your lovely beans from Campos or wherever it is, and, and you've got your whole beans, and you've got, uh, you've got two grinders at home, right? One of which is your little, your hand wound, you know those little Japanese grinders you can take when you go camping or whatever, and you, you do one cup and it takes you about 10 minutes, and you're grinding away and you get one cup like five minutes later, and it's good because you get a sort of upper body workout as well as coffee. 
But right next to the bench, on the bench, I've actually got a great big Ranchilio burr grinder that's plugged into a whole bunch of power. And I can just go push the button and I get this coffee comes out immediately. And there's enormous power to grind coffee really, really quickly. And I can grind coffee on the Ranchilio all day because it's plugged into this extraordinary power source. So many of us spiritually are like hand grinding the coffee beans of our spiritual growth. And we're like, I've got to make myself better. It's all about me. I've got to drum up the willpower. I've got to, oh, I've got to work. I've got to work. It's so hard, isn't it? I'm like grinding and grinding. And God says, guess what, man? Here's, like, here's the whole sort of cosmic power grid. Just plug into that, right? <laughs> Endless. Forever. <laughs> Just thought I'll keep doing that because I'm into sound effects today and there's some young people and so you know. That isn't the problem often is we we just don't plug into the power that God says it's there for us, right? It's his plan. Now does that mean that uh, we should just, in the words of the holiness movement, I'm not sure if any of you are ever caught up in this, the sort of the Keswick holiness movement. Um, big in the 60s and 70s and 80s, you know, where you just, there was this little phrase that went round that what really, what you've just got to do is let go and let God. Did you ever hear that phrase? Yeah, some of you did. Okay. Most of you are just looking at me and going, huh, that's weird. I was told there's a, you know, this this sort of of quietistic, pietistic hold, just let go and let God. Is that what this is saying? You know, well, divine power, how am I going to get from here Mark likeness to Christ likeness. Well, just come, let go, let God chill out. He'll take care of it all. Is that the way forward? Is that what's required? If it's not grinding, but it's, is it just, ha? Ah. Well, look at, look at how the text goes. Look at the argument. It's, it's just said this, God's divine power. It's given us everything we need through knowledge of him. We know God uh, and his very great and precious promises This is all from God to give us power to change. What's the very next verse the apostle says we should do? For this reason, see it? For this reason, make every effort. Huh? It says now God's power is there, but you, just precisely because his power is there through his very great promises to move you from your likeness to Christ's likeness to move you to participate in the divine nature. Now make every effort. And, and if you're a good Protestant, even if you're a moderate Protestant, um, sometimes this can be really confusing because we go, hang on, isn't, isn't Christianity all about grace? I, I don't have to make an effort to be saved. God does it all for me. Right? Isn't, isn't that what you think? Like, it's all about grace. I can't save myself. It's Christ who saves me. So, well, ah, that's right. But here's the thing. Uh, grace, God's grace, is opposed to earning, not to effort. Do you see that? So, if I come to God and I say, I want to move from Mark-likeness to Christ-likeness, I want to participate in the divine nature, and the way, I'm going to, the way I'm going to get there is by earning God's favor. 
If I'm going to jump through hoops, I'm going to be good and Anglican and religious and moral and say the right things and believe the right things. If I'm going to do that and I'm somehow going to twist God's arm to show me favor, if I'm going to try and earn my way into the divine nature, the Bible says that's not how it works. You can't earn your way in. It's grace. God just loves you as you are and says, I just want to embrace you. I want to bring you in completely undeserved. But grace is not opposed to effort. It says, I love you. I accept you as you are. But now, you know what? I've organized the world and I've made you in such a way that living into this reality is going to take work. Not to earn my favor, but because you've received my favor. You see that for this very reason, for the very reason that we have by grace received God's very great and precious promises so that we may participate in his divine nature because his power has given us everything. For this reason, put in a whole pile of hard work. Right? And what's the hard work? What do we need to make effort to do? Uh, Well... You'll be pleased to know the text tells us. What we've got to do is we've got to add to our faith. Now, just a a quick definition of faith, if you you may not think about it, have thought about it this way. I think in this context, a helpful way I find to understand faith is a deep confidence that Jesus is who he said he was and that living for him gives you entry into the kingdom of God, that Jesus can be trusted and is trustworthy in every part of your life. So faith is faith in the promises of God that that Jesus is enough for you in your workplace, with your money. Jesus is enough for you with your sexuality, with your marriage, with your parenting, with your grandparenting. Jesus is enough for you to forgive people, to love people, to serve people. You can trust him, right? He's a trustworthy king and savior. So you got that? You now you deeply trust Jesus. Yeah, awesome. Now, out of your deep trust, your settled conviction that Jesus is enough for you, you've got to add some things. The first thing you've got to do is you've got to add goodness. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> you've got to add some moral virtue. And that takes work, right? This all takes work. You might be born into the likeness of a uh, virtuoso violinist. You might be born with the nature of a profoundly brilliant musician, perfect pitch, amazingly nimble fingers, and you know all the genetic makeup to make you an amazing violinist. But you don't wake up one day able to play uh, violin concertos on the violin. It takes work. Goodness is like that. You don't wake up one day able to be morally good. Like you've got to work at it. So you've got to work at goodness, moral virtue. And then you've got to add to your goodness something else. And what that something else is, is knowledge. Now, what, what might be going on there? Well, you need to know why the good that you do is in fact good, right? You need to know this stuff. Christianity is a religion that, uh, that is based on a whole series of truth claims, of uh, a view about the way the world really is. And knowledge is simply knowing the truth about how underlying reality works. And so you've got to know why we, what we do and what we claim to do is good. Now you say, well, why is that important? Um, it's important because... <laughs> Uh, 
it's important in our particular cultural moment because we actually live in a post-truth age, don't we? We live in an age where knowledge and thought and truth claims are massively devalued. So it doesn't matter what the objective truth is. What matters is how you feel about the truth. Truth is entirely dependent on what you think, and you construct it mostly about how it makes you feel. So I don't know if you've noticed this uh, in our common discussions. When we talk about stuff, you say, you might, we don't say, I think this is true. So I, I think same-sex marriage is a good idea for these five reasons. You say, I just feel, I feel like it's a good idea. When you're asked to make a decision, you don't say, I've really thought long and hard about it, and I think that today I'm going to have a piccolo latte instead of a strong flat white. You say, I just feel like... I haven't... So my decision-making on the, on the trivial things, but also the big things, are really driven by my feelings. And, uh, and that's not... That, that's, there's some deep philosophical threads behind that. Um, that's another whole sermon series, but at least part of it is, is subjectivism, romanticism, and emotivism. Just throwing out some isms there. But this idea that, 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 tr- that values, morality, and virtue are not based on facts or reality or the world as it is, but our values and our virtue are based on our feelings and on our subjective experience of reality and, and what works for us. And, and a in, in direct contrast to that, the Bible says, no, if you're going to move from Mark likeness or your own likeness to participate in the divine nature, you need to know a whole bunch of stuff about the nature of the world. Otherwise, you're not going to grow, right? It's going to be very hard. Uh, you then, in addition to goodness and knowledge, you need to add what? Self-control. Uh, what's that? Well... If you're going to progress to participate in the divine nature, you need to be in control of your life. You need to be setting the agenda for that journey because otherwise, guess what happens? We are at the mercy of all these external forces, aren't we? Like we're never in control. Like we're, we're, we're at the control of other people's approval of us. We're at the control of what, the, what our culture says is right or wrong. And that's, that changes all the time. You know, what was clearly self-evidently right in our culture in one generation or 10 years ago is now seen as wrong and abhorrent and bigoted. So self-control says, no, no, actually, the self, myself, my being is under the control of my will, which is actually submitted to the will of Jesus. So I'm not buffeted around. I can, I can chart a course that can actually fly in the face of disapprobation and disapproval and conflict. Like, you know, this, is, this, this is how it is to live for Jesus, okay? And, and I'm in control. Um, by the way, uh, one way we develop self-control is through the discipline of fasting, right? Uh, fasting is one of these means of grace God gives us where we say, I will, I will say to my body that I'm not controlled by hunger. The self, myself, my being makes a choice over what I do with my body. And so that's one of the reasons you know, fasting as a spiritual discipline is helpful. By the way, you can fast from social media, which is a great way of saying, <laughs> I'm, I'm actually, which, and, and social media is a terribly addictive thing where you get a dopamine rush every time you get a little like on your Instagram feed or your Snapchat and someone responds. And so fast from that to say, no, no, I'm not at the mercy of what everyone else thinks. I'm, myself is in control. I don't need the dopamine from social media. Just an aside. Uh, and in addition to that, if you're going to make progress, friends, we need perseverance. 
Because let me tell you, and I, don't, I actually don't need to tell you this, I'm sure. I look, I look out and I see most of you already. You know all too well the journey from self-likeness to Christ-likeness, that is a marathon. That's not a sprint, right? That's, that's hard. I find people, I talk, to a, I, I talk to a lot of particularly younger folk, and... Um, I don't want to stereotype millennials or Gen Xs or anyone, but often one of, the, one of the most brutal realities young people have to confront is that life is not easy. It's just not. And this can be terribly confusing in terms of your faith. If you're brought up thinking life's meant to be easy, and then you discover actually it's really, really, really hard in all kinds of ways. And so the Bible says you need perseverance because there's going to be a whole bunch of stuff that's going to smack you in the head and knock you down. And I say to young folk, when I, and I'll be confused, and I say, who ever said that life was meant to be easy? Where did you get that from? That's just not true, is it? Oh, well, you know, I'll tell you where you get it. Like we, we Photoshopped Facebook friendly social media feeds that tell us all the time how wonderful and good and awesome life is and should be. Everybody else is having a great life and so should you be having a great life. You know, I think as Muhammad Ali's trainer very famously said, and I can't remember his name, he said, you know, everyone has a plan until you get punched in the face. I love that. Everyone's got a plan until you get punched in the face. Let me tell you, life is going to punch you in the face. If it hasn't already, just wait, it's coming. And then what's your plan? Well, pick yourself up and keep walking. One of my favorite authors, a guy called Eugene Peterson, in, in one of his, some of his writings on discipleship, he says the Christian life is a long obedience in the same direction. Isn't that amazing? It's a long obedience in the same direction. That's it. There's the direction. Mark, Jesus, walk. Smacked in the face, knocked down, get up, keep walking. Smacked in the face, knocked down, get up, keep walking. Now, of course, the problem is it's often not other people who are smacking me in the face. I need perseverance because I find I'm smacking myself in my own face. And so I need perseverance to keep picking myself up. I mean, I've, I've tripped myself up this time. I've sinned yet again. I've been smacking myself more than anyone else. So just persevere, Mark. Come on, man. Come on. It's a marathon. It's not a sprint. Don't give up before the end. Fight the good fight. Run the race. And then you need godliness, by which I think in this text it means uh, godliness is that place we get to where these previous virtues are so embedded in our lives that they're second nature. So, and and these, these are the characters of God. So now our second nature is to be like God in these areas. And then notice something, that uh, he, the writer makes a switch from these inner virtues to, to outward-facing virtues. Do you see that? He says, and to godliness, what do you need to add? You need to add Philadelphia. That's actually the word, root word behind this, mutual affection. So now it's saying, you're on this, as you're on this journey from self to, to participating in the divine nature, to becoming Christ-like, what you've now got to do is, is, is be prized outwards beyond yourself and start to show mutual love. And the word Philadelphia, the root, is, is this mutual affection within your kinship group, your, the church, or your, your immediate family, your extended family. It says, love those in your tribe, in your kinship group. Learn to do that. 
You've got to learn that. Like you're not going to become Christ-like if you can't love the people in your church. Uh, <laughs> that can be hard, can't it? No, never. Of course it can. Of course it can. We're all annoying and irritating and disappointing. As, and I'm just speaking for myself, as well as we're wonderful and glorious and brilliant. But that's life, and so God puts us together and says, you've got you to gotta work at mutual affection at Philadelphia for your family, your spiritual family. What's the, the climax? What's the, what's the goal of all of this? When you've, you've worked on this inner transformation, you've made every effort to do that, and you're learning to love your family, where do you get to? You get to love, agape love. What's this? Well, the love that is the ultimate expression of Christ-likeness is enemy love, isn't it? It's the Jesus praying for those who are nailing him to a cross kind of love. It's the Stephen praying for the Jewish leaders who are stoning him kind of love. It's the Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, civil rights standing up against oppressed, oppression and racism while never losing his love for white Americans kind of love. That's agape love. Agape love is the love that says, I don't just love you because you're like me or you're part of my kinship group and that's hard enough. I will love you even when you've sinned against me, even when you hate me, even when you persecute me. I will have that kind of radical, other person-centered, serving, forgiving, dying for my enemy kind of love. That's the end goal of this process of transformation. Uh, which, of course, might make you think, why the heck would I do that? <laughs> if that's the end goal, I think I'm going to take another path, right? I don't want to have to love in that way. In fact, that's a, that's a really, that's a very valid response. I, uh, years ago, I was doing a, um, a master's degree down in Melbourne at RMIT in organization dynamics. And we were studying as part of one of, the, one of the assignments at uni. It was a small group, only 12 of us in this cohort going through this program. With a really great lecturer who wasn't, he wasn't a religious man, but he was very open to spiritual things. And we were talking about our church at the time, and I was using my work in the church as part of the, the, the case study we were looking at. And I said, you know, our, our primary job as a church is to help people become more Christ-like, Okay, that's this journey, right? And the lecturer just looked at me in this class, he's 12, he says, wow, why would anyone want to do that? I mean, look how it ended up for Jesus, right? I thought, that's right. So in the church, we get so used to going, yeah, yeah, of course, we want to be like Jesus. Just stop and think about it. Like, yeah, he got himself crucified. When Christ calls someone to follow them, he calls them to come and die. Die to self. Live your life for others. That's a tough call. Why would we do that? Well, um, what's on the other side of the death of Jesus? The resurrection. 
if you try and hold on to your life, Jesus said, then you'll lose it. If you don't follow Jesus into this path of other person-centered life that will cause you to lose your life, you'll never rise to glory on the other side and find your life. That it's in laying our lives down in the service of, of others that we participate in the divine nature and inherit divine glory that lasts beyond the grave. Jesus says, if you hold on to your life, if you say, no, no, I'm not going to serve others. I'm going to make my life work on my terms. Jesus says, you know what? It's going like, to be like trying to squeeze a whole bunch of water in your hand. The harder you squeeze, the quicker it goes out between your fingers. He says, that's what it's going to be like. You're going to try and grab onto life, but you're going to lose it. But if you follow the way of Jesus and you walk in his path and you participate in the divine nature, it, it is massively countercultural. It seems crazy. It, it opens you up to a lifetime of suffering and heartache and persecution and challenge and being smacked in the face by yourself, by people in your church, by your family, by others, all over that. And, and you lay your life down for your enemies. But Jesus says on the other side of that is a resurrection to glory. Now, let's join some dots. If the ultimate process of moral transformation is that we can love in this way, doesn't that make sense? Because how is God described? God is... God is... Love. God is love. It doesn't just... God, so as we become transformed... God's divine power, giving us everything we need, us making, putting in the effort, doing whatever it takes to become men and women who can love in this kind of agape way. This is how we participate in the divine nature because we participate in the very essence of godness, which is love for the other. Isn't that extraordinary? And here's the challenge. Uh, you can, you might listen to all of this and say, well, Mark, great, inspiring for the first two-thirds, kind of depressing after that. You should have stopped after 20 minutes because went downhill after that. But I'll give you, you know, you had to kind of finish it off somehow. But I don't think I'm really going to bother with that too much this year. I've got a lot on my plate. Mate, I've got to get ahead at work. I've got a marriage stuff going on and parenting and kids and grandkids and I've just got a lot of stuff on Mark. So you know what? I don't think I'm really going to take my faith this seriously. I'm not going to make all this effort. It's just too hard. Come on. Uh, the text seems to indicate that if you don't put the effort in, the real risk is what? You end up ineffective and unproductive. But of course, the wonderful thing is if you put the effort in, by implication, you're going to end up what? Effective and productive. You're going to change the world. We're going to change the world. That's what's going to happen. That's the story of the last 2,000 years. Followers of Jesus, deeply plugged into the life of Jesus, living in the way of Jesus, have changed the world. And that's what God wants us to do in 2017. Become Christ-like and change the city of Sydney. Be productive and effective in your life, in love. Here's a little framework to help you think about this. I've got some homework for you. I know you came to church wanting homework. Here's a way to think about your experience and your growth, right? It's a little acronym uh, comes out of the coaching industry. It's called GROW. 
First thing you've got to do, and you, know, you can use this in your parenting, in your marriage, in your professional life, but oh my goodness, it works spiritually, and you can read to Peter in this light. First thing you've got to do is you've got to set a goal. What do you want to do? Okay, so, you've, so go back this week and listen, read through to Peter and go, um, you know, I want to grow in my knowledge. I just know diddly squat about like Christian theology. I need to fix that. I'm going to have a goal. I want to, you know, know why I believe and what I believe. Okay, so what are the options? So that's the, then the next thing you do is once you've set a goal, uh, sorry, before you do that, you go, what's the reality? This is often where we get stuck because we don't like reality. <laughs> I, I want to be someone who can forgive my enemies. The reality is I'm really selfish. If you ask people all around me, I'm a bitter, twisted person who holds on to unforgiveness. So go rub your nose in that reality because until you understand that, you can't really move forward, right? Or whatever it is. So knowledge, you think you know a lot about Jesus, but actually you don't. It's been 20 years since you read anything other than a kid's Bible to your kids. So, you know, do Alpha or whatever it is. So you, you look at the reality. That you, that, sorry, the Alpha comes next. Uh, you look at the options then. What are the options to help you get to your goal? And, and the wonderful thing is there are 2,000 years of church history says this. Lots and lots of ways that God has given us to help us grow. Like being here on a Sunday is one of them. Alpha is another one. You know, help you grow in community. Do, do our Alpha course. Uh, we're doing it across in all our small groups. And we really want people to engage deeply, to come to know God, to grow together. Find some people around you where you can be really honest with, with this stuff, right? Accountable. And then the final thing is, is your will. What will actually happen? Who is going to do what, uh, when, and where? How are you going to grow? Like, figure this out, right? Let's grow together. Isn't that exciting? How cool would it be if in a year's time, and I actually think this is the normal experience, if in a year's time uh, we all sat around and we, and we looked back on 2017 and we went, wow, I, we, have really grown spiritually. Like we're a little more like Jesus in this area and that area and that area. How awesome would that be? We we love each other a little more in the way of Jesus here in this church. We love our enemies. How cool would that be? So there's your homework. Go and have a conversation with someone who knows you and loves you and just work through this process. Look Look at 2 Peter. Think about what are your goals? What does God want to do in your life this year? Uh, and, um, you know, we're here to help. That's what church is about. We're a community, and we're all on this journey together. Let's pray. Our great God, um, I thank you that you have given us your very great and precious promises so that through them we might participate in, in your own divine nature. And I pray for each of us in this room, no matter where we are on our spiritual journey, whether we're you know, whether we've been running away from you, ignoring you, whether we're just starting out trying to figure this stuff out, or whether we've been pursuing you and trusting you and living for you for 70 years, wherever we are, Lord, may 2017 be a year where we make every effort to grow spiritually, every effort to become more and more able to love the way you loved, so that we can change the world for you. And we ask this in your great and wonderful and powerful and precious name, Jesus. Amen.